Well, it hasn't happened yet. I'm Brian. I'm Carrie. This is Isaac, and we are joined today by a friend of mine named Stephen Martin. Stephen, introduce yourself to the good folks. What? I don't get a really, uh, you know, big, uh, big, uh, glamorous introduction because I mean, I'm not going to talk real big about myself, right? You're the man with the soundboard, though. So, I mean, I, we thought you'd just yeah, yeah, uh, you'd right. drive that in. Yeah, you were waiting for me to play a stinger, <laughs> weren't you? Okay. Yeah. Okay. Well. <laughs> Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm, <laughs> I'm the Reverend Stephen D. Martin. I am, uh, uh, you know, United Methodist clergy for a long, long time, uh, longer than Isaac's been alive, I think. And, uh, yeah, I kind of been watching the right wing and the, um, especially the, the church's role in right wing movements, uh, both historically and, um, you know, in, in current, current times. And, uh, it's not a very relevant topic because, you know, the church is never involved in, in these kinds of things. It's, uh, it's a very uh, impartial kind of player, right? Churches don't get involved in politics, uh, left or right, maybe, I don't know. But anyway, um, uh, what else do you want to know? Uh, filmmaker. uh, Yeah. Um, filmmaker, um, uh, communicator with the National Council of Churches for a few years and now working on a project called the Lakelands Institute, which um, is basically working to deal with um, work with church bodies and with clergy uh, on issues that are facing the church, dealing with mainly the big transitions that the church is in right now. Uh, I first met Stephen in Charlottesville when he stayed at my house for the first anniversary of A12, but he was there on uh, in 2017 and took some very famous photographs of uh, the event that day. So shout out to that. You've probably seen one, probably the most famous being a picture of the wall of clergy marching towards the white supremacists there. Um, it was all over the place. So that that was Stephen's picture. We wanted to come, we wanted you to come on, Stephen. But first, I have to ask a question that I probably should have asked before inviting you on. Are you technically a baby boomer? How old are you? What generation do you fall in? This is a question. Um, this is a big question. So I was, I was born in uh, November 20, I was born November 21st, 1963. Uh, 12 hours after I was born, President Kennedy was assassinated. Oh, wow. So nobody noticed or celebrated so, your birth. Yeah, it's really cool. Um, but it that means that, you know, one of the signature events for like baby boomers define themselves as where were you when when JFK was assassinated? You know, do you remember where you were? I know where I was, um, but I don't remember it. And, and you know, my mar- my life has been kind of marked by that remembrance uh, ever, you know, every year uh, of my life. So I, I kind of had that affinity with the baby boom generation. But I also think that that one of the key things, key defining uh, characteristics of the baby boom generation is that the Beatles had to have something to do with your uh, with your life. And uh, the, the Beatles had nothing uh, in my childhood. Had I was completely unaware of the Beatles and in uh, all such uh, similar movements. So uh, I'm, I'm going to, I really, um, 
feel more of an affinity toward Gen X than uh, than the boomers. So let's, you know, uh, there's that's debatable in every way possible, but let's just go with that. I'm happy to have another Gen X person on the podcast. That, and then that was also at first I was thinking, I was like, this is a long way of saying uh, this is this is a this is a no that des- this is a yes that desperately wants to be a no type of answer. But, I, but I, I'm in. Uh, I think that this is I think you're 100 percent in. So Gen X, I, I'm, I'm on the tail end of that. And it's funny because I'm also like just between Gen X and, and like, I guess it would be millennial, but uh, somewhere in between that little zone because I don't have a lot of the touchstones that people do. So welcome on. It's glad, I'm glad to have another uh, uh, person that's not in their uh, like teens and, or late teens and 20s on the podcast. Yeah. In other words, it's good to have an old guy, right? Yeah, there it is. Yeah. I, I was trying to, I get called the old guy all the time. Fine. So I was trying not to go it's there. Fine. But I, have, uh, I don't have a fragile ego. Okay. We, well, it's not very fragile. Just invited, yeah. wanted to invite some wisdom onto the podcast. Hey, there you go. Some wisdom. That's right. So uh, with a good hairstyle. But but that's it. I mean, the reason why uh, we wanted to have you on, Stephen, is because there was an announcement this week that the uh, sort of traditionalist far right side of the United Methodist Church is has announced its like new um, global denomination that they hope to form after the general conference in 2022 called the Global Methodist Church. And it's sort of the culmination, the, the, the coming schism in the United Methodist Church is sort of the culmination of about 40 years of uh, active work by the far right in this denomination to, um, you know, basically tear apart the institution of the United Methodist Church. You've been tracking that for a long time. Uh, and so we wanted to have you on to kind of take us through that history. But first, uh, y'all, we how can what else do we need to share with folks to set up the moment that we're in before we go back to the beginning of it? Well, I think the, the uh, if I might just try to jump in, you know, uh, being scared of silent time at any point in my life, you know, I'm kind of afraid of of silence. Um, I think that uh, that this is just a, a a larger. This is just a piece of this larger division that's taking place in society right now. And it, 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 it's not just that this has been going on in the United Methodist Church. It's not just that this has been going on in the mainline denominations. This has been going on across the church and across the whole spectrum, uh, church, non-church, all everything. We're all, uh, this, this, this split in society has been intentionally exacerbated. I'll just leave it there. Harry, what were you going to say? I was going to say that it might get in, we might get into some inside baseball about the Methodist church um, in this pod. But so I think people who maybe don't know anything going in, it would be helpful for them to know that the Methodist church has been on track to essentially split into two or more denominations and that most of that split, most of the energy behind that is fueled by the more conservative factions of the church. And that I, I think that an important detail just for like what the context for what happened in the past week when they announced the global Methodist church or whatever is that they are like operating on the insinuation that like it's like you're kind of racist if you're not homophobic. Like they want to say that like actually the global church is homophobic. And so you're like discounting the global South if you're not. Uh, if you're not homophobic. Well, and it also felt a little bit kind of like a reverse 
I don't even know what Anglican Church of North America move, right? Like, so the Anglican Church of North America left the communion and created their um, created their kind of like schism. That's what I'd call it in the United in the in North America. And so this feels like an opposite of that. It's like well, we're just going to schism them out. It's it's a, it's a, it just it felt like a total power move. So yeah, I appreciate that. One one other thing that I would add to this conversation is that all at least I know the three of us, and I'm going to assume Stephen as well, have some very uh, intense and passionate feelings about this. So I, I would I would once again just apologize for any insider passionate baseball that comes out because uh, it's just speaking for myself. This is something that has affected you know my life fairly significantly on, on a religious side. And so sometimes uh, I, I'll just let you guys. You can just tell me to stop. I'm going to give you the free permission to be like Brian, shut up uh, for one episode only. So there it is. <laughs> one episode only. One day, yeah, it, it expires at, at 2 p.m. Central today. <laughs> Your fear of being silenced hangs over every episode that we make. <laughs> yeah, but, um, but in this one, I'm giving you permission to, to actually cancel me just to turn me off. Yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I would just say that, you know, in our rogues gallery of Christian fundamentalist nightmares, uh, the Global Methodist Church takes an, a place next to ACNA that Carrie put in the fight corner just a few weeks ago and the Theopolis Institute and first things as uh, the Methodist version of all of that sort of psych, you know, just crazy uh, far right stuff within Christianity that has really blossomed under Trump, but has much older roots. And I, I think the bigger picture for all of this is Stephen's right that that what we're going to go through today is, you know, even if you've never stepped foot in United Methodist Church, this same this same thing has played out in the Presbyterian Church, in the Lutheran Church, in the Episcopalian Church. I would assume that something like it is coming in the Catholic Church after this, and it also involves a ton of the conservative political groups that have been shaping American policy for the last 40 years as well. So, you know, the collapse of the UMC, the schism of the UMC, it's kind of the final mainline denomination domino to fall in all of this. But, you know, the reason why you should care is that the people who have wanted this to happen for decades uh, are the same people that brought us Trump or the same people that brought us, you know, Sarah Palin. You know, they were... uh, at the height of their sort of at the beginning of their power in Christianity in the Ronald Reagan days. And uh, that's probably a perfect place to throw it over to Stephen to kind of give us some of the background here. How did we get to where we are today? Well, um, in, um, I think it was 2007. So this is a, a, you know, intermediate term project for me and one that I really kind of uh, put to bed after I made this little short documentary film that I made. Um, but in 2007, I, were, I remember being at, uh, at our church's annual meeting. So it's kind of in a regional space, East Tennessee and Southwest Virginia. We have an annual meeting in which all, you know, pastors and church leaders come together that live within that, uh, that geographical space. And um, and I remember uh, there's always a time in those conversations in those meetings where it's kind of a, there's an exciting piece of it where uh, resolutions are brought forward and and um, people debate various topics and there's you know the floor I you know recognize so and so on the floor for you know five minutes whatever you know it's a, kind of a congressional debate kind of style and I've always enjoyed those times because they help. 
helped me, the debate helped me understand what some of the big issues were. And in 2006, I believe, uh, I, or maybe 2005, I recognized that there was, a, there was one of those resolutions that was coming in and it wasn't, it was penned by or it was signed by members of, of this group, but it was written by somebody else. It was written, uh, you could go to a web, you could search the language and you could go to a website and you could see that this was not um, a, a, a resolution that had come organically from the floor of this conference, but instead it had, uh, it had been disseminated from ostensibly a, what it called itself as a think tank in Washington, D.C. And I got really indignant about that. I was really kind of like, what the heck is going on here where outsiders are meddling in our uh, little family's business here and what's going on? And I, I started doing some research and some making some connections I started learning at that point about something called the Institute on Religion and Democracy. Uh, we were joking before this uh, got started that it's really not an institute, and it certainly is not about uh, religion nor democracy. But it is a very, very conservative think tank that is constantly putting out you know, press releases, announcements. Now it's all Twitter and and so on. But uh, back in those days, you know, it was a it was a they they issued a uh, a newsletter that was a very glossy quarterly uh, magazine kind of thing. And then they had departments set up for each of the mainline denominations. So there was a, there was a, um, a group or a part of the staff was devoted to um, issues in the Presbyterian church, some in the United Methodist church, some in the Episcopal church. And um, all of these uh, organizations were being targeted by their by their writings and their uh, by their by their work, in such a way that church leaders were terribly afraid of being written up by the Institute on Religion and Democracy. So let's just say that you're a Lutheran bishop and you held an event. There might be somebody that showed up at that event that was from the Institute on Religion and Democracy, and they would they would be there as a as a reporter ostensibly. Now there are times when they actually I was I've been at lots of events where they showed up and they did actually pretty good standard reporting, but often these reports would not be actually accurate, but they would be hit pieces. They would be um, ad hominem attacks. They would be. Uh, finding uh, heresy where there was no heresy. Um, and, and these kinds of things would take place. And let's say that you're a, a bishop in a church and, and you were at a conference and one of those people showed up to write, uh, to report on the event, you would suddenly be absolutely terrified to take any kind of prophetic uh, stance on any issue because of the fear of be- getting written up uh, in an article by the IRD and having a, a large number of your constituents come after you for this terrible thing that you did or didn't. You know, I think I think they didn't. I don't think they made things up so much, but they definitely would take things out of context and spin statements in a way that was inflammatory rather than um, just factual. So that's how I became aware of it. Now, it actually starts earlier than that. Uh, we could go back into that history, but you know, I don't really know as much about that as I know about what 
you know, I've, I've kind of laid out in front of you now. Well, just to give people a taste of this, like why it was a problem for leaders of the church is that they would write an article about, you know, someone speaking. And then at the end of it, it would say, if you disagree with this, contact your bishop, you know, send a check to the Institute for Religion and Democracy. Basically, it, it was an early attempt to sort of generate outrage for the sake of, um, you know, getting people fired, uh, which has always been something that the right has had more success doing to the left than the other way around, even though they decried all the time. But just to give you a breakdown of the arms of the Institute on Religion and Democracy right now, they have three sort of blogs or, or subsets of their website that I just pulled up. One of them is called Juicy Ecumenism. Yeah, wait, which, which I'd like to say is, is Ben Shapiro's favorite blog. Keep going. Is that like factual? Or no, I was just making a joke because of the, the whole WAP controversy. Keep going. They have UM action briefs, which is sort of what Stephen alluded to is probably their original thing. And then they have a, uh, a website or a magazine called Providence Magazine, which here's the tagline, addressing national security and global statecraft through the lens of historic Christian thinking. And... I just, you know, let that wash over you. But uh, also, one of my, like, one of the wildest things is a couple years ago, they had a, they had an, an issue of Providence that has a picture of SEAL Team 6. It is talking about, like, the death of bin Laden and over top of it, like, the word Providence. Um, so, yeah. And, and just as I'm scrolling their website right now, some uh, trending topics on, the Juicy Ecumenism blog, Columbus and the Culture War. What is ecumenism? Like, is it, um, is it supposed to be ecumenicism? Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay. Sorry. I just, I was like, what's happening here? Continue. <laughs> yeah, it's a subset of that word of uh, ecumenical. It's the principle or aim of promoting unity among the world's Christian churches. I had to look it up. I thought, it was, um, I thought they literally misspelled the word ecumenicism, but okay, I'll get off my high horse. <laughs> One can only hope, yeah. It's apparently the principle behind ecumenical activity. Perfect. So we've got Columbus and the culture war. Is liberal democracy fatally flawed? And should Christians support drug decriminalization? Uh, some other ones. How, here's how the new Christian left is twisting the gospel. And then an article about a uh, Fort Worth... Acna Anglican Church, who is just won a property battle with the Episcopal Church. <laughs> Which, so. as a side note, fuck Fort Worth Acna people. <laughs> <laughs> there it is. Uh, well, yes. and like Providence, yes. I think Providence Magazine, the, that magazine, that's the one that's run by the guy who used to be a CIA agent, right? Like Stephen, in your, in your, uh, so that that tracks. Uh, and juicy ecumenism, whatever. Uh, that's that. Actually, I did not realize until we started talking about this that that was a part of the IRD because that was they were huge and back in 2016. I was at General Conference, which is kind of the the large gathering every four years for for Methodists, and I was there, and they had they had such a huge presence, kind of to, to what Stephen was was mentioning. I mean, they were just everywhere. It's so every single thing that happened. It didn't matter where uh, or when they were reporting on that. It was all over social media. So that was kind of my first introduction to them and their their founder. Uh, 
I, I don't know if we, do we want to name him John Lompris, whatever his name is. He's just everywhere. And he, it's, it's funny because those articles that you mentioned that are on that blog is the exact way that he kind of engages with everything. He engages with it, not uh, how Stephen described it, but also this cherry picking mentality of like, I'm going to twist this around. So he's like all encompassing. doesn't matter. He has so many takes out there. It doesn't matter what it is. He'll, he just drops take after take after take. And it's kind of this like thing of like, I feel like it's just this constant deluge of information. I don't know what the strategy is. Maybe it is just to kind of always be out there. But he literally like will just pop up in the middle of a discussion on Twitter or Facebook and like drop a take and then just be gone. And it's always really the same thing. So anyway, I, uh, I, I'm, I'm, I'm triggered by him and by that blog because it's just... And I'm triggered too, but I also uh, want to make clear that John Lamparis is not uh, in any way, shape or form a founder of the IRD. It goes further back than that. And uh, there is a woman whose name escapes me at the moment. Um, but uh, the, the actual, the, 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 the Institute... Uh, um, was begun in the mid 80s as part of um, the right wing's campaign against uh, uh, or actually in support of um, of the Contras during uh, Re- the Reagan administration. Oh, holy uh, shit. <laughs> Some yes. of you babies are, uh, are are young, old enough to understand all that or to remember it. Um, there was a As time. As a side when note, he- if you don't understand the Iran Contra situation, there is a podcast called "You're Wrong About" that has a very good, very short episode that will explain it to you. Back to you, Steve. Yeah, yeah, and that's and that's a big piece of history um, because it was humiliating for uh, Reagan to get caught up in this whole thing, but it was also very extra constitutional. Um, and um, uh, when the um, the U.S. was uh, U.S. government was backing the the Contras in um, it's in Nicaragua, right? Um, I, I yeah, in Nicaragua, and the um, the Sandinista uh, the their battle against the Sandinistas, the IRD came in uh, as a way of, of kind of supporting that point of view. It was begun by Richard John Newhouse, who was a very, uh, he began, he started his career as a Lutheran uh, clergy person, but shifted over and became a, a Catholic priest, um, started a magazine called First Things, um, which was a very conservative, um, you know, uh, kind of a foreign policy almost uh, uh, magazine. But um, the whole, the, the IRD was begun, that's what we call it. We call it the IRD because it's just, you know, it's, it's less cumbersome than, than the Institute on Religion and Democracy. Um, but but it came out of this uh, attempt in the 80s to uh, to silence the, um, the, the progressive, the, the, uh, the liberal churches protest uh, against um, the U.S. government supporting the, the the Contras, and it was also it kind of couched in the language of religious freedom, and so I think there is a case to be made that it was in its inception, a creative part of the dialogue that takes place in the United States. Whether you agree with it or not, I think it had a role in that dialogue. It was Diane Nippers was the name of the the, the original uh, founder. She passed away. (laughs) She she passed away from cancer fairly early on. And when when she died, it's like this whole organization was transformed. And, and became uh, kind of weaponized, mm. and a, a key figure in that uh, in that weaponization was a former CIA. He wasn't an operative; he was more of an analyst. You know, one of these guys that sits in a basement and goes over, uh, you know, 
radio transmissions or something like that. But um, uh, a guy named Mark Tooley, uh, who is currently the president, I believe, of, of the IRD. It's interesting that uh, that actually Tool is a part of his name. Uh, we can, you know, we can we can run with that if we'd like. But uh, um, but when Mark Tooley got involved, he was. He was running at the t- in the you know at the time that I was doing my work on this topic. He was running the United Methodist side of this uh, you know quote outreach. I'm doing air quotes. I don't know if your listeners can see the picture here, but I'm this, I'm I'm big on air quotes. I I have a theory that if you put air quotes around anything, it suddenly makes it funny. And that's so I you know I I, I throw around the air quotes all the time just uh, as a way of of being uh, trying to be humorous. But anyway, like Diane um, Nippers died of cancer. Air quotes. Oh, what? <laughs> but does it, you don't think that's a real thing? Uh, I don't know. Anyway, I just um, made it funny to me. <laughs> oh man. And, and it's also true that uh, air quotes make just about everything irreverent. So, you know, I'm down with that, too. What what I uncovered was that this was not just some little isolated little um, group of people who worked out of an office in Washington, D.C., that this was a very, very heavily, you know, well-funded, well-supported uh, organization with a particular political agenda. And the uh, the analysis goes like this. It was understood at the time of its founding that while uh, mainline Christians really only represented maybe 6% of the American population, that uh, a much, much higher percentage of of Congress, congressional members, were members of mainline denominations, mainline Christian denominations, somewhere in the realm of like 30 or 40 percent. I've forgotten what that figure is. But the analysis was like this, that if you if you could um, if you could diminish the power of the mainline Christian denominations, then you could also diminish the power of the congressional members who were affiliated with those denominations. And these people were mostly Democrats. So it was a political strategy to undermine the power of the churches and that by undermining the social witness and calling the social witness of the churches in, in, uh, into question. It was a political strategy to do that in such a way that it would undermine the power of the Democratic Party, that if you could split the churches then you could split the party as well. So it was at the very highest level of national politics that all of this came into being. And the way that this is really borne out is that you will never, ever, 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 ever hear a positive word said by any writing in the, in the, uh, uh, in, by the IRD uh, about any of the mainline churches. They're always talking about renewal and about, you know, bringing churches back to the gospel and, and you know, conservative theology, et cetera. But it's always done through attacks. And that's really key to, I you know, I think probably um, 
you know, I, I think in his training tool, he probably was given some um, some training in the CIA about psychological warfare that he brought into uh, into play in uh, in this uh, really awful church politics. So the the split that we're seeing in society, the split that we're seeing manifest in the United Methodist Church right now, we could go back a few years and see how the the, the Evangelical Lutheran Church of America split. Same thing, exact same thing was behind it. Presbyterians split years ago. Episcopal Church split years ago. The United Methodist Church is on the chopping block now, mainly because of our governing structure. It's a lot harder to split a church that has a decentralized governance structure as the United Methodist Church does. Yeah, so there, there's a bunch of stuff to sort of um, pull out there and, and really kind of hone in on. And, and you hit it there with that last comment that the reason why you can do something... So basically, Mark Tooley to put an even finer point on it than you did, was hired from the CIA to come in and do regime change in uh, the mainline Protestant denominations in the United States. Fair enough. Uh, yeah, I mean, he's, you know, using a lot of the same playbook that the CIA was using all over uh, Latin America and South America in the 1980s, which is when he was active in in the CIA or the late 70s. So, you know, the question is why these denominations... All of them are democratically uh, operated. You know, their their governing bodies are um, determined by the votes of delegates that are elected to big conferences. Where you know, whereas the Catholic Church just does not run that way. You know, if you want to do something, if you want to affect change in the Catholic Church, it's going to come from the priests and not the laity. But uh, just to to sort of keep commenting on a couple of the other things you pointed out, Stephen, is that, you know, the difference in the point you made about mainline Protestant denominations and Congress, like members of Congress, I think you can see and kind of track the ideological shift that you're describing in what that representation looks like from like the 1990s to today. Whereas, you know, in the 90s, what we're talking about is Hillary and Bill Clinton being, you know, members of the United Methodist Church and having come up in, um, you know, the 60s and 70s when the United Methodist Church was um, one of the first denominations in the United States to allow the uh, ordination of women, you know, had played a small but important role in getting white people to embrace the later half of the civil rights movement. And the IRD and their conservative political backers seeing that influence and wanting to break it apart to where now, you know, when I think about United Methodist uh, representation and political power under Trump, it was, you know, the most prominent person was Jeff Sessions. So we kind of went over the years from the Clintons to George W. Bush, also United Methodist, and, you know... Dick Cheney as well, by the way. Yeah. No. Yeah. Oh, God yeah. Damn it. <laughs> I sorry. Oh, damn it. <laughs> sorry. <laughs> I just like saw the life leave. I know. I know. Yeah. It's like yeah. the, the definition right. of being shook right there. There it is. <laughs> I agree with the IRD that the whole thing needs to be burned down. <laughs> well, that was the question I was actually going to ask, Isaac. And is is what is the, I guess is the is the is the goal just like schism? I guess schism to to dilute power um, because. 
and, and if that's the case, you know, you think about like in the Methodist church, especially when, when all of this was coming to somewhat of a head in 2016, you had the one church plan, which was all about kind of unity. And, we, and we're hearing that in government too. So I'm wondering, you know, Stephen, Carrie, or Isaac, if you have any thoughts on that, like, is that the, is that kind of the end goal of this? It's just a schism out and, and kind of get rid of any kind of dissenting voice and then reclaim power. Um, and like, is there any kind of like reason for people to fight for a denomination like the United Methodist Church? I know Isaac's feelings on that. Uh, well, maybe wow. not, or a part of it. I don't want to put words in your mouth, but I think that there's something like, there's a lot of people, a lot of my friends who are clergy who will go down fighting for the United Methodist Church. And, and when I hear this stuff, it's like, well, is that a, is that a sinking ship no matter what, basically? And I well, tend maybe maybe yeah. we should come back to that at the end because come, okay. there, I think there are a couple more pieces to to sort of tease out about what this means for us culturally. Because the other reality is that mainline Protestant denominations founded most of the um, sort of culturally important uh, universities in the United States, from Yale and Harvard to Princeton to Duke, like Vanderbilt, all over you know the East Coast and the West Coast, with the exception being the sort of uh, Catholic schools in the Midwest and Northeast. Like one of the other goals of people like the IRD is to constantly stoke the fires of uh, the culture war on campuses about mm. you know free speech and and liberal brainwashing and whatever else. Because the further they drive that wedge, and the more radical they make these, especially in the United Methodist Church, the more conservative they make the lay people there the bigger uh, the divide grows in the relationship between the denominations that founded some of these major academic institutions and those institutions themselves. So Duke now founded as a United Methodist school, but because of the conflict over LGBT ordination and marriage has basically separated itself as far as it possibly can to the point now where Duke Divinity School is reliant on evangelical funding and students. So it, it wasn't just, you know, Part of the reality is that a lot of the um, culturally relevant private institutions in the United States in the 20th century were founded by mainline Protestants. And um, that's another key part of the sort of disruption that they've been trying to create. And I'm, I'm going to shut up now. Well, and, and, and again, just to, to, uh, to, to broaden it out even more, um, I'm, I'm not a conspiracy theory guy. I, I, uh, I have arguments with my brother all the time who uh, is a conspiracy theory guy. And, you know, we both come out on the same at the same point in a lot of places. You know, we come to the same conclusions about how broken things are. But I tend to look at things uh, in a systemic way right, where he looks at, you know, these these cabals who are operating in dark closets and, you know, and making moves. So I don't really go that direction. But this is not uh, this 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 sounds conspiratorial. It kind of is because it is a, it is not a, I don't think it's a, the IRD is a very small organization. It's in, it's in a coalition with other larger organizations who have different, uh, who have other goals in mind. It, it is, it is a small organization that became a strategy center for pulling off this kind of division and most importantly was funded by Richard Mellon Scaife, Howard Amundsen, um, some wealthy, wealthy people who, um, if you read Jane Mayer's book, Dark Money, um, she goes into some detail about how the how Scaife and others have um, have 
you know, had a direct political agenda uh, in this direction by targeting uh, vulnerable institutions and working to divide them uh, in order to uh, throw power over to uh, more conservative groups. This is a very this is a technique that that uh, the U.S. and and all of the colonial powers used uh, over the centuries to uh, control people, uh, divide and conquer. You know, we know about divide and conquer, but also when you know the the Paris Peace Conference was uh, redrew the maps of the of, of all the countries in the world. One of the strategies was to take parts of like. Nigeria, for instance, Nigeria didn't exist before. It was made of a, a, a there was a Muslim part and the Christian part, and by drawing a boundary around that too, and making those two have to work together, how to figure out how to govern together, they were actually they they were setting it up for failure. Um, it was a way of 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 making sure they were fighting against each other rather than fighting uh, the 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 colonial powers. So um, these kinds of politics of division are always, always around trying to get another person who really isn't maybe the most visible player in, in, in any dispute. It's to get them power. And I think that, you know, again, that's where it kind of dovetails with um, with some conspiracy theorists. I know that in, in the research around this field, there are some very people that I think are I would I would critique them as being particularly kind of off the rails and seeing it as a, all a big dark conspiracy. I think it's more systemic than that. But there is no question in my mind that this particular strategy was funded by people who had an interest in that strategy and carried out by people who are willing to take their money and do their dirty work. And what's happened as a result is that all of these church bodies that have been based around doing good for people everywhere, doing good for society, building justice, building institutions where, you know, hospitals and, and, and all of these things where those those institutions have been sacrificed on the altar of power. I, I think yeah, I, I just uh, go ahead, Carrie. <laughs> oh, sorry. I was just going to say that it sounds, I mean, like, I think part of why it can sound conspiratorial or like we're just like cranks and this is all crazy is because, um, is maybe because people assume that there isn't this kind of like political maneuvering in church spaces. Um, and so the idea, like, just coming face to face with the facts that uh, a, a conservative, an extremely conservative faction of the church is extremely politically motivated and extremely strategic about the ways that they engage in power grabs. I mean, it just, it sounds conspiratorial because people want to believe that you're coming into a church space, like with uh, the gospel in mind and not with like human power. But uh, what also struck me as we were talking about this is that um, I recognized UM action from they actually responded to that blog that I wrote in 2017. Wow. <laughs> I'm, I'm getting kind of close to crying right now because I like, it was such a horrible time for me uh, and for my family. And we, I mean, it was like really traumatic and we're still working through it years later, but I was a 23 year old, like living in an attic in Seattle and there was an entire political structure behind the people responding to my blog that I put on my personal website. And so like, that sounds like a conspiracy. Like that sounds like it shouldn't happen at all. 
anyway, so that's that's what I had to say about that. Well, and that's that's what I was going to say is that like I think I am one of those conspiracy people, and I don't want to be. But when I was watching your documentary, Stephen, I was like, oh, the CIA. I knew it. I knew they were involved in this. <laughs> uh, and I'm trying really hard not to not to say the word neoliberalism because I know it's not connected, but I think everything is connected to that. But but I think. Carrie, I think what you just said, though, is kind of what I was trying to get at with my comments about uh, juicy ecumenism um, or whatever it's called. <laughs> is that ecumenism? Uh, yeah, that's the juicy blog. Uh, is that that's what I was trying to get at? Is that nothing is off limits to them or, or to that person yeah. in particular, and they will kind of come at and and throw the entire weight of an organization or seemingly an entire weight against somebody who wrote a blog that like. I, I don't know if we talked about this on the podcast, but I actually read that before I ever knew Carrie and then made the connection when we the first time we met. And it was something that was profoundly important to me. And so it's like, that's the part that's frustrating to me is like, they will do that. And they just have no regard for who the person is against. They're just looking to wipe all of that stuff out and to counteract it as soon as it is. Because to me, there's a, there's a seed of, when there's a seed of truth in that stuff, um, it, that's the shit that starts to crumble down all of their, 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 the walls that they're trying to put up. Anyway, Isaac, I've cut but you off I, twice, so... I think the other important piece, though, that keeps this from entering the realm of the conspiratorial is that you're not speculating about the people who are paying for this stuff. We know from, you know, IRS filings that their support comes from far right political action groups like the Heritage Foundation and the two people like early Koch brothers psychos that Stephen named. I mean, Stephen, in your documentary, which we'll link to in the show notes, you point out that from the 1980s to 2007, at the time that you made the documentary, that they had reported over $70 million in funding from these groups. Yeah. Yeah, 70 million. So for this... That's not account change, you know, and this is is real assets. One of my proudest accomplishments in my life was, though, is that when this film was released um, and uh, a foundation picked it up and and distributed a copy to every... uh, delegate to uh, the United Methodist Church's General Conference, which is a thing that happens every four years, it did uh, cause a great deal of damage to uh, to their the work, their, the way that they were doing their work at that time. And it's really interesting to look at their IRS filings, which uh, showed in, I think it's 2008, that they had $2.3 million in the bank. And um, their 2009 filings showed that they had $93,000 in the bank. Um, we know that uh, that uh, funding uh, left them uh, because of um, you know the film and some other work that was being done at the time. And uh, uh, Roberta Amundsen, who is Howard Amundsen's uh, wife, ex-wife, I'm not sure what the relationship was. She was on the board of, of the IRD, and she brought she she quickly left at that point. Coincidence? I don't know. Um, but uh, but I am uh, I do. They took a very, very severe hit in those years, but unfortunately it wasn't enough. And uh, the damage had really had already been done and there were already other groups ready to carry on the same agenda. Well, and I think part of what that agenda did, and, and this is what was so revelatory to me about the, about the documentary was, me thinking that this was already kind of organically baked into the United Methodist Church. And so it became a critique for myself, a critique of the United Methodist Church, not this outside influence. And I'm, I'm no longer a member of it. And it's something that actually I carry a lot of, like, I, I try not to think about it too much because it actually makes me really sad. I'm like died in the wool Methodist and Wesley and all of that. And it's just, I, I couldn't do it anymore. And so it's, I think part of why I'm so excited to kind of have this conversation and I've 
been enjoying this so much is I, I think just uncovering that a little bit to say, look, this was all happening out here. To me, gives me a little bit of hope for for the institution. I know Isaac, we can we can debate that at a different podcast, but I, I do I, I like I like thinking about this not just something that was. I know it's like empathy for the lied to. Like they they created this this uh, propaganda campaign that now is working, and maybe we can't stop it from from fixing. But there's some kind of benefit. Or there's some some kind of relief for me at least of realizing like okay, there there was some outsider influence. It wasn't something that was like foundational and core to me theologically that that spawned this. It came from somewhere else. And maybe I'm wrong on that. Feel free to well, and, shoot I, and me I, down. I think it's a I think it is a, both a symptom of and a cause of uh, the broader split in society. Mm. I would just say that part of the reason why some of it feels so revelatory is because they do a good job of couching their bullshit in things that people, especially too many centrists, take seriously, like scriptural, um, you know, the authority of scripture or, (laughs) you know, traditional Christian orthodoxy or whatever else. I mean, even on their website, they like couch all of their work as about renewal of the church, something that the documentary does a good job of pointing out. Their rhetoric really makes it seem like, oh, these conversations are the things that the church should discuss. And these people are like, you know, just a part of that conversation that's come up naturally because we're talking about the identity of the church rather than, um, you know, them just coming straight out and being like, yeah, we're a bunch of conservatives that would like to see the liberal mainline church fall apart for the sake of, you know, harming democracy or whatever else. So I I think that too often we take their sides seriously as Mm. like intellectual partners and difficult discussions for like the Christian tradition rather than political operatives with a fucking agenda trying to rip this thing apart. And, And for me, you know, the blame there really falls to a lot of pastors for not you know, not sort of more openly talking about this. But I, you know, I think the same thing the same thing happens in Congress all day long when, you know, Democrats won't like, you know, until recently openly even talk about the fact that Republicans are constantly trying to take away the right to vote for anyone except, you know, uh, older wealthy white people. So it's just like to go back and say, uh, you know, a long story short, they've been using LGBT people specifically as a Trojan horse for decades for this other deeper agenda. They don't give a shit about, you know, they don't give a shit about the authority of scripture or the renewal of the church. And the other weird thing that you point out in the documentary that we kind of glossed over earlier is that one of the founding members of this group was a fucking Catholic. And most of the people who worked for them were Roman Catholics. They were not even Methodist or Protestant at all. So if you want to get really conspiratorial, this is the papist (laughs) trying to like... Inter, you know, infiltrate the Protestant movement and destroy it. Do you have a, do you have oh a warning? God. Do you have a warning signal on your on your uh, soundboard, Stephen? We might need that there. So kind of. No, I, you know, I don't. Uh, I uh, I took the sad trombone sound off, and I took the uh, I took the crowd applause. I should have kept them on just for this uh, for this podcast. Maybe like a siren or something. I know I what, for the moment where Isaac quiet. almost came out, uh, his hot take of coming out against scriptural authority, and I was about ready to plug our people's commentary a Bible podcast, but then he, he brought it around at the end. So I felt, I felt fine about it. I am in full Bane mode right now. I know you are. I, yeah, I didn't know we were going to be calling people papists on the pod today. It's gone. It's gone. It's gone off the rail. Where? 
Well, I will say that while it is being done by, you know, while while there are plenty of fingers to be pointed at in the Catholic Church right now as far as, you know, culture wars and and uh, and ultra conservative politics and stuff like this. And yes, in fact, the uh, the the uh, the IRD and, you know, funded by and, and founded by uh, uh, conservative Catholics. Um, this is this is a bigger this is a big this is this is about people who really don't care about faith at all getting involved in church politics in order to uh bring about a, a, another kind of you know political change in the world and that's what's really upsetting to me is that, you know we can have these kind of discussions all day long uh christian to christian uh faithful to faithful. We can, we can do that kind of stuff all day long. But when, when other people outside my family, you know, you stop preaching, you've gone to meddling kind of stuff, you know, and they get involved in, in, uh, in, in, you know, pitting me against, you know, I pastored churches in, in East Tennessee. And back in the nineties, people didn't care about, about LGBTQ. They didn't care one way or the other, you know, it wasn't something that, that could be, uh, there wasn't this big divisive issue that people were ready to bomb each other's houses over. You know, it was it was something we could talk about and discuss and just, you know, and and yeah, you may you may disagree with that statement some to to a great degree. And I, I that's fair. But um the fact that this is so divisive, all that we're ready to just you know blow it all up, that is the work of people who have an interest in seeing that take place. That's pure and simple. Yeah. And I mean, I think I think I do sort of disagree with the idea that people like didn't care about LGBTQ issues. In Fair the enough. Churches. Yeah. But I do think that like um, part of the reason that there wasn't so much uh, fear around it uh, is also I mean, a there were there are, there were in fact fewer LGBT Christians in churches in the '90s. Um, the rates of LGBT Christians have actually gone up in the last uh, 20 years. But also in, in discussions of LGBT issues theologically, like a lot of the onus is on LGBT people to have grace for uh, the people who disagree with our existence, and I. I mean, like, in this is just for me personally and not for any other LGBT person, but I'm willing to like have those discussions and, and find grace for people, individual people who like disagree with uh, like the theological positions I take. Um, but like when you have, like when it's about power, when you do have like an enormous political um, and well-funded, like powerful people trying to cause an issue, then it doesn't matter how much grace LGBT people are willing to have for the straight people in their lives who would rather that they just like sit down and shut up. Like it really, I think where I'm going with this is that it becomes, uh, we start talking about like personal responsibility when in fact, this is a structural issue. Mm. 100%. Yeah. And, and just to sort of bring it back to where we started with the Global Methodist Church, when that was announced on the 1st of March, uh, you know, there was a post on juicy ecumenism <laughs> by Mark Tooley uh, <laughs> saying... <laughs> Mark Tooley? Tooley Tooley and yes. ecumenism is just that's uh, We need that on a soundboard. We got it next week. Yep. So he, you know, he's writing and it just so happens, man, what a... Uh, 
what a crazy coincidence that the transitional leadership team of the anticipated new global Methodist church includes um, Reverend Martin Nicholas of the Houston area, who's an IRD board member and who chairs UM Action, the uh, group of, of crisis bloggers who attacked Carrie. And then shockingly also includes uh, people who have been a part of writing their founding documents are Mark Tooley and John Lamparis. So, you know, it's just like, here they are getting what they've been working for and they've been willing to sort of trample over anybody that has stood in their way of, you know, weaponizing colonialism and their relationship with the African Methodist Church and, you know, not the AME, but United Methodists in Africa. And yeah, we're at the point now where they're close to to getting their split. And so maybe here is where it's time to sort of reflect on whether or not at this point that's the best thing forward or or any other thoughts about the future of sort of mainline institutions in general. Because at this point, to me, they seem to be pretty much toast all across the board. Well, like when Rule 44 happened at the 2006... And that, this is like super insider baseball. But Rule 44 I, I, was the idea of like, and correct me if I'm wrong, where we were going to stop general convention business and everybody was going to break up into random groups and we were going to share and talk about... Um, you know, questions of, of homosexuality and just, and have that, like a, a conversation that would hopefully lead to some more insights in whatever they were going to pass or not pass. And then when they shut that down, when they, when the, the people from the, uh, the more conservative side, the WCA folks basically shut that down, I was like, well, this is over for me. Like they're not even willing to kind of be changed or, or have any kind of moment of the Holy Spirit to kind of like come into this and, and change, you know, have a, have a heart change on either side. Uh, my hope would be that they would choose an affirming side, but once that happened, I was just like, well, this is over for me. That was the moment where I was just like, I'm Episcopalian officially now. I, I left. I, I literally, like, I came back home and I was just like, all right, we're not doing this anymore. Because it's just like, well, this is, this is all just a game. I, I don't know. I don't know. If, but that, that was my first thought is, and since then, I've just, I've just unplugged between that and, the, and I, I just don't need to, I don't want to do it anymore. So anyway. I ended it. Yeah. Did I just end the, com- the podcast again? I'm really good at that. Stop. Drop. Yeah, I always you do that. The <laughs> no, I mean, I think I'm that- tired of this shit. I want to just, just stop recording. I, I've, I've said my piece. I'm out. So. <laughs> Brian is rage quitting the pod for the 15th time. Over the Methodist in, uh, schism, yeah. episodes. <laughs> oh, shit. Yeah, but, all right. I don't know. I mean, I, I feel you... I feel like I end every single podcast by saying one of two things, burn all the institutions down or I don't want to be a pastor anymore. And I uh, <laughs> I don't know which one where I'm going to end up today, but it's like on some level, you know, the, it it is, if nothing else, we're marking the end of an era, right? I mean, it, like it, it truly is a time of transitional power, I think away from institutions more broadly, you know, the, the far right's effort over the last few decades has been to dramatically weaken them and they've succeeded, you know, to what end? I mean, I think either way, things need to be drastically rebuilt and dismantled and rebuilt. And But the other reality here is that we're also talking about, you know, what's going to happen now after the split in 2022 is at least a decade of legal battles over the distribution of assets. I mean, that's the other reality here is we're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars being reallocated and and divided and whatever else in court, just like happened in the Episcopal Church and the Lutheran Church. And uh, and that's about, you know, a power transfer as well. So yeah, I, I think a lot of the uh, 
sort of contemporary focus is on evangelical Christianity and it's sort of succumbing to the far right in the in you know the Trump era especially but uh, in a lot of ways the UMC split is evidence of the continued relevance of that in the mainline but also sort of like the final the final like stronghold falling with a whimper and not a bang at this point but still it's it's the end of a of a generation's sort of effort to to shape America from a Christian perspective for better or for worse and a rare non sarcastic be an optimist oh. for a second yeah i was uh, yeah go ahead i was going to say something optimistic too so uh, rarely for me. I was just going to say, Isaac, we need people like you though to remain being pastors. Like, right? Like that's the, the I'm, I'm for real. Like I, I, I'm being nice. I'm, I'm trying to say, I'm trying to lift you up to bring you down. I, you know, and I've told, uh, I've told Isaac this, uh, that uh, when I met him and, and a, a few other uh, clergy in Charlottesville, I suddenly had hope for the future again, you know? So, so you can't, you can't leave. Isaac. Yeah, let's, Sorry, let, let's you know? calm it down now. I think that's a little um, but, bit, that's enough for Isaac right there. It's, but it's, uh, I think that these things, uh, we've been, a lot of us have been frustrated. I've been frustrated all my life at the inauthenticity of the church, um, uh, the, the, the hypocrisy in the church, the, the ways that, you know, in most of the churches I've either you know, pastored or, um, uh, or been a part of, they're social clubs, they're country clubs. They're not, uh, they're not about doing the the hard work of the gospel there's no sense of of you know life death and resurrection in the churches and uh uh and and in the in the structures that support those churches the the conferences and the hierarchies and stuff there's definitely not any sense of life death and resurrection so i've been frustrated with that for a long time and there's been a lot of scholars you know like david gushy who've been saying you know we just need to get rid of the you know let's let's do the thing where you like sift the the wheat from the separate the wheat from the chaff you know let the chaff go let it blow away and what we really need is a smaller church but a more disciplined and a you know a stronger uh, social witness and uh, you know honestly I think the kingdom of God would not suffer a lot if a lot of our churches fell apart and closed you know honestly what does matter is the people who get it the you know the 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 few that See the you know the many are called but few are chosen. Those few that get it, that that understand that you know that the church is the purpose of it is to live out you know this this pathway of here I go preaching, but you know live out this pathway of of, of faithfulness, uh, following the example of Jesus Christ, and and not getting caught up in all this salvation nonsense. I'm sorry, I, that's a I, that's probably going to get lots of comments on your blog, so you can thank me later, but. Uh, but about you know this is about making life better for people and 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 by the way you know when jesus was asked what the most important thing is repeatedly he said love god with all your heart soul mind and strength and love your neighbor as yourself and that's the center core of what it's all about and you know if we can if we can emerge from this somehow with with churches a few churches that are more clear about that that's a, that's a, I'm, I think that's a positive development. Steven, you're, uh, you're forgetting which generation you're talking to. The only thing millennials and Zoomers care about is tearing down capitalism. So you're, you're preaching <laughs> okay. to the choir. That's cool. <laughs> yeah. I mean, you know, if, if anything, if I was going to say anything positive, um, 
And it's a stretch, let's be honest. But uh, <laughs> this is the time for like Methodism to step away from its role in imperial power. And, uh, you know, the reality is that I don't want Dick Cheney to be a Methodist. I don't want George W. Bush to be a Methodist. I don't want the Iraq war or child separation of the border to be a part of the United Methodist Church. So if like the falling apart of this institution means that we have an opportunity to disentangle ourselves from power and, and become a critical voice of that by being a smaller body, then yeah, I'm here for it. But, um, you know, that work is always going to be on the local level. So, well, in the immortal words of the inevitable, the inimitable Stanley Hauerwas, <laughs> God is killing the mainline church and we <laughs> goddamn well deserve it. I did not expect the accent. Oh, I know, it was perfect. <laughs> that was amazing. That was amazing. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I think part of that too is going to be have to be people who give up on the tradition of Methodism as some kind of like uh, holy cow that can't be that can't be busted down because you know a lot of the questions when this was when this was over the last ten years that I've heard is like but what about connection you know or what about the way we are it's like that shit does not matter anymore at this point it's like connection is not going to save us and I, I was really disappointed in one of my seminary professors who had a huge impact on me uh, to find when we were I was doing research for this to find that he had written a blog basically supporting the WCA's movement because, you know, um, basically in the name of Methodism, like traditional Methodism, I was just like, that's just stupid. Anyway, so uh, I I think there's some work to be done there too of like, we just, not we, I'm not a part of it anymore. You all uh, have to be (laughs) able to to think of beyond, beyond the tradition and like, and, and to the stuff that uh, Isaac, you know, is talking about, about how that's more important to the story of, and I would say more fundamental to what Wesley was about anyway. Um, and trying to get back to that basic. So, or just come become Anglican uh, Episcopalians with uh, me and Carrie. Just join us. I'm, I, I'm not like super invested in the structures of the Episcopal Church yeah, either. Yeah, so. me either, honestly. So, <laughs> Yeah, at least we don't have a national cathedral. Uh-huh, calm down. Whoa, whoa, whoa. <laughs> well, I mean, but I think that like, I mean, what you said about how you'd be totally fine with like the structures burning down is like also how I feel. Um, not the first person to say this, but like, uh, like in order for something to be resurrected, something has to die. And I, uh, my day job is in church polity. And like just recently I found out, I was, I found out through my day job that we, but like the Episcopal church has a feast day for a Confederate who not only was like a, a chaplain to the Confederate army, but also like was one of the founders of the Klan. And, and for some reason he was in our uh, lesser feasts and fasts because he like helped fa- found Sewanee. And it's oh, like, wow. that's the, the, the feast day of, uh, of St. Be- uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest. Is that kind of thing? <laughs> uh, William Porcher DuBose, I think was his name. Oh uh, yeah. Yeah, no, that, that's oh, you're thinking. I've celebrated that to feast day many times. You, you're, you're, <laughs> you're thinking of the statue, that, like the fact that we have that, and it took. And the the reason I found out about this is because there's a resolution to remove him from the lesser feasts and fasts, so that we no longer are celebrating him. But it took us until 2021 to figure that shit out. Like, excuse me. So I guess I'm just not. I'm not invested in the structures of any church, and I do think that like. Uh, I don't love that it is the conservative wing of the of the denomination that is like ostensibly winning these battles and like ostensibly winning the fight to divide the church. But I also don't necessarily think it's going to be a bad thing in the long run. 
I just worry about, you know, there's that thing that Jesus said about, you know, you cast out a demon, uh, then the, the, you know, the demons come looking around, seven more demons come back in, look around, see things in good order. And then they, you know, they, they take over. And, and what I do worry about is that, uh, is that if the, if the institutions that we have, and I, you know, I guess, you know, history will show us it, time will tell, but, uh, but I, I do worry that if, um, if the institutions do fall, something else will come back in their place that may not be uh uh all that great so uh i do worry about that this is where i have silicon valley bros uh (laughs) naming their companies after lord of the rings characters (laughs) future episode coming be on the lookout no but i think that there is a tradition here that like a sort of nefarious awfulness of like toxic masculinity and white nationalism and and you know white supremacy from the IRD to you know Gamergate to Charlottesville and and you know Richard Spencer I think that like the playbook that people like the IRD put out is you know how how we got Trump it's that same shit I mean mm-hmm. it's so it's no coincidence that the IRD and Rush Limbaugh were becoming very popular at the exact same time Clearly. And they were using the exact same tactics, uh, you know, different types of media, but the same sort of thing. Mm. What were you going to say, Brian? I cut you off. I don't know. My wife just came in and told me somebody's sitting outside our house with an iPad. So, so my, all my, I'm going to take back everything I said about the CIA uh, a little bit. I was just <laughs> kidding. Um, so I, I, I actually wasn't listening. That's just now. Sorry. Uh, well, Gary, do you want to open the fight corner? Uh, sure. There's been so much bullshit this week. <laughs> but uh, I want to start by welcoming U- University of Texas President Jay Hartzell to the fight corner. He was not the president while I was there. He's, he started like right after I graduated. So I have no idea what his tenure has been like. But uh, recently, the, so recently there was um, a big controversy at the University of Texas um, over the school's unofficial song. I want to be clear that it is an, their unofficial song because our official fight song is called Texas Fight. And it is just about like how much we hate Texas A&M. And it's fine. It's very fun to sing. It's upbeat. It's got a good, got good lyrics. We're great. But the unofficial fight song is The Eyes of Texas, uh, which is sung to the tune of I've Been Working on Railroad. And it was most famously uh, made popular at minstrel shows at UT in the 1950s. And also like further going further back, uh, had like the original lyrics that were written for the minstrel shows had roots in someone who was a literal Confederate who then helped found the University of Texas. Apparently it's based on a quote by Robert E. Lee. Yes. Um, yeah. So there, there's a really interesting article about like the whole, about how that even like came to be in the University of Texas. Um, so you can look it up. It's really, it's interesting if you like uh, how, how, um, phrases get into the water, but so this is like a pretty, a pretty racist song to be singing. And most, I will say most of the UT student population doesn't know about this unless you are, uh, basically unless you're black. Like, I don't think even other students of color would know about this. Um, and approximately 6% of UT student population is black and over the summer during the Black Lives Matter uprisings, uh, student activists set, uh, wanted to ban the playing of, of 
Texas fight at sporting events because they were like, this is racist and we shouldn't sing it anymore. Um, and so this past week, UT did not respond well. Um, the, the football players staged a strike and then most of them, with the exception of the quarterback, Sam Ellinger, walked off the field while it played at football games. And he's uh, white. He's Just white. Put that out. He's yeah. white. He's um, JT McCoy. Oh, and there's also <laughs> no way his parents didn't vote for Trump twice. <laughs> um, his dad's dead. Uh, so he probably oh. didn't. Sorry. Well, his mom, anyway. <laughs> I don't know that much about him. Isaac's coming with a Jeep knowledge. I know. <laughs> I read a story about about uh, about him and his decision to not join his predominantly African American teammates in walking off the field. Yeah. So all of that happened over the summer, and uh, basically the the new uh, was he our old football coach or was it the new football coach? The old one. The old one said, no, we're definitely going to keep playing Texas fight. And President Jay Hartzell backed him up on that. Uh, But this week, the Texas Observer um, published a story that was written based on FOIA requests for the emails from donors that UT received in the midst of the controversy around Texas fight. And they are some of the worst things I've ever read. (laughs) But basically... A bunch of donors, like seven-figure donors, you know, like people who donate football stadiums and stuff, uh, immediately emailed the president, Jay Hartzell, and was like, if you stop playing Texas Fight, like, I will stop funding the university and, like, said some extremely racist things. And so this week, Jay Hartzell um, updated his statement about UT continuing to play Texas Fight to be like, just to be clear, this was a smear campaign and none of the emails that we received from people who donate literally like seven figure donations factored into our decision to keep playing Texas Fight. Just to clarify, it's Eyes Over Texas, right? That's Oh, sorry. Uh, the yeah. Eyes of Texas. Yeah, the I, Eyes of Texas. Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. I get a little heated. <laughs> <laughs> Clearly. Well, but I just want like, welcome to the fight corner, Jay, because you know, your update to your statement is actually more racist. Like you're saying, we know the song's racist and none of the donors' emails affected our decision to continue (laughs) playing this racist song. We just did it because we like it, which is bonkers. And I think that, I mean, A, I think that they should stop playing it at sporting events and B, I think that if he had just, A, not said anything or B, owned up to to the fact that like, yeah, the UT and any other... Uh, major university is beholden to the donor class that like is interested in the direction the school goes like people there's a reason that uh, our football stadium is named after red mccombs and it's because he gave a shit ton of money to the university of texas like literally the mccombs business school is named after him he's not a good man he just has a lot of money he's he has a business school named after him for pete's sake anyway so jay hartzell you can fight me (laughs) That was just me ranting about UT, I guess. I mean, you, you, Carrie, you were so hesitant to be to to be to name yourself a podcaster. But what else? It's good for it to have a podcast, but to take your personal griefs, uh, grievances, like uh, with Jason, yeah. and put it out there. Meet me in the Chili's parking lot, Jay. Oh, uh, but, but I mean, like I, I think that this comes back to something that Isaac, you actually touch on a lot, which is that it makes it really clear that to UT donors and even to the UT president and administration, student athletes, and to a larger extent, the greater student body is like, they are nothing but unpaid employees 
who are there for the donor class's entertainment, not for an edu- not even mm. like nominally for an education. And I mean, I think it, it just like really exposes the rot underneath like the UT sports industrial complex. But it's also, it just makes me really sad because the UT football team is a majority black team and they're going to have to keep going and listening to Texas fight just because um, Jay Hartzell can't, can't grow a spine. Well, just to, I think to connect some of this back to um, everything we've talked about leading up to this, UVA also had a moment like this uh, in the fall where, you know, in the midst of trying to figure out what to do with its racist statues, including one of George Rogers Clark about to kill a Native American and the Confederate cemetery that's on their campus. And of course, the Thomas Jefferson statue at the heart of it. Um, Jim Ryan, the president, said... uh, as long as I'm president, UVA will never walk away from Thomas Jefferson or his legacy. And it's because the people who are like most important to these schools' finances are the same people who have been um, radicalized or a part of founding these movements that have radicalized uh, so much of the right around the culture war aspects of this, you know, how we tell the, the history of this nation and whose stories gets to be shared or ballyhooed or whatever the fuck but anyway it's just um yeah i think it's just another example of that exact same dynamic that that we've already touched on and and with that i think all takes (laughs) have truly been revealed including brian's terrible insecurity over getting canceled (laughs) canceled literally i i don't like people sitting outside my house so i gotta go investigate canceled unto death (laughs) um steven is there anything you'd like to plug before we uh, let everybody go? Also, I just want to put out a word that Stephen um, is blissfully ignorant of the fight corner before today, probably, and uh, does not endorse or necessarily <laughs> like the, the beliefs and people put in the fight corner. He does not directly endorse necessarily or agree with whatever was whoever gets beat up. I think that works out to shield. Yeah, yeah. And, and every time we were talking about UT, I kept thinking about, you know, University of Tennessee, the other UT. Oh, Terry and I talk Miles. about this all the time. So, I, you know, I was just so confused there. Um, yes, excuse me. I just can't get out of the habit. No, I, I hear you. I, you know, but, but what's up with the same orange that's big? I don't get it. Anyway. Uh, Your orange is way uglier. Don't talk to me about that. No. <laughs> all right. All right. The five quarters not to read. <laughs> hey, anything I want to plug? Yeah. Um, uh, love, justice, and mercy and all that stuff. Um, that's how I'd like to plug that. Um, no, I, you know, uh, find me at uh, www.lakelandsinstitute.com. Uh, that's my project. And uh, lots of cool things happening right now. But man, it's really, it's a crazy time, but I love it. Um, I feel like there's a lot of ferment that's been taking place all my career that's just now we're starting to see it pop, you know, and and for and, and we're seeing it go bad and we're seeing some real opportunities open up. So, yeah, that's what I'm here to talk about. All right. We appreciate it, Stephen. Thanks for enlightening, enlightening us about uh, all the horrible shit in our country and our church. Yeah, man. Anytime. Anytime you need some depressing shit. Yeah. <laughs> All right, y'all. <laughs> um, like and subscribe to the pod so that we can all quit our jobs and work on the pod farm. 